Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Ann Montgomery, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. I am so excited about our time together. I barely slept last night because I knew this interview was coming. Uh I am so honored to have you on with us, and I'm so excited to have you tell us your life story. Like we talked about before we hit record, everybody has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. So with your permission, we're going to start with where you were born, go all the way up to today, and then we can talk about anything you're working on today, and then we absolutely want to talk about the book that you're working on for June, okay? Okay. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. So tell us where you were born. I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but my parents moved shortly thereafter. So I was raised in New Jersey. I consider myself a Jersey girl, but I've been in Arizona 30 years and I wear cowboy boots. So maybe I'm also an Arizonan. I don't know. But I I was raised right outside of New York City. I could walk the end of my street, hop on a bus, be in Manhattan in 40 minutes. Wow. So the Garden State, huh? Yeah. When I went to college, I went to Miami of Ohio. And uh, when the kids there said, oh, let's go into the city, I went, great. And they took me to Cincinnati. And I went, where's the city? This is not a city. I hope I'm not offending people from Cincinnati. But to me, a city was New York. So, Oh, my gosh. So the, so the chilly capital of the world wasn't New York, huh? No. No, I didn't. <laughs> for like skyscrapers. I'm like, what is, where am I? So yeah, I, I am, I'm a Jersey girl. I, am. I got you. I got you. There's just no place on, in the world like Manhattan. There's know? not. I, three days of it, I'm si- I'm over it. But yeah. I do miss that sometimes. I miss the theater. I miss the museums. I miss the restaurants. I miss all that. So, so I think I know the answer to this question, but let me ask you anyway. What was your favorite thing about growing up in the Garden State? Um, the variety of things that I got to to do. Uh, people, I really get upset when people say New Jersey is nothing but concrete because yeah. I learned to ski in New Jersey. I, we had the beach, we had the we had mountains, we had forests. I grew up in streams and 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 the woods around my area. I did not grow up in in uh, an urban setting. I mean, it, New Jersey is quite beautiful. So I really spent is. quite a bit of my life defending it. Also, again, New York City. I mean, I, I realize it's not New Jersey, but you hop into the Museum of Natural History or the Museum of Modern Art or see a Broadway show. I thought every kids, all kids, could do that. Clearly, I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> But what a way to grow up, huh? It was. It was great. And I will defend New Jersey forever. There you go. I'll I'll defend it with you. I haven't even lived there and I'll defend it with you. So let me ask you this. Who was the most influential person to you growing up? Wow, that's hard. Um, I I was a loner. I was obese. And I, I came from a family of very smart people. My mother had a college degree and was a reporter in the 1940s. Oh, watched my dad get a master's degree when I was eight. They read two newspapers every day and my brother and sister were smart, but I didn't find out till I was in my fifties that I'm dyslexic. Oh my gosh. 
back then they didn't have a name for this. Nobody said, right. oh, maybe she has a reading problem. Right. So um, they just said I was stupid and lazy. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a great deal of time alone. Yeah. And and the best thing about that was I had a big collie. Yeah. And she was, she, I don't know how to explain that, but she was with me all the time. She even came to school. And where I'd go to school and kids would make fun of me. My hair was really short. Kids would say, are you a boy or a girl? That kind of thing. And um, my dog would come to school by herself. And mm -hmm. the teachers knew her and they'd let her in the school. And she would come in and find me and lie down next to me. And that made me very popular. Yeah. In fact, uh, three little girls came up to me one day after school. I'm bouncing a ball against the wall. And they said, we've decided you can't bring that dog to school anymore. Because when that dog is here, all the boys pay attention to you. Yeah. So don't bring that dog anymore. And my brain's going, I'm bringing my dog every Absolutely. day. Absolutely. That just qualified him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so honestly, at that point, it was my dog. Yeah. We you know, just pushed I, his ticket. It, she was the best, Betsy. And I, I, you know, I had some friends, but I, I was awkward and um, not, you know, my I, I wasn't smart. And so I always felt like I didn't really belong anywhere. So I, I, it's a, maybe a silly answer to your question. No, it's not. My dog, my do and I had a cat too, yeah. but um, they helped me. And yeah. and honestly, today, I love wilderness. I love woods. I love brooks. I love lakes. I'm a scuba diver. I like nature. And so I spent a lot of time by myself in the woods, which was beautiful. Yeah. So I don't know. I would have been a different kid if I grew up somewhere else. But I, Your I'm dog's name was Betsy? Betsy, yeah. See, that's why we asked that question. That was the perfect answer, by the way. Oh, okay. That's why we asked that question because we want to we want insight into how you grew up, and you just gave us the total insight. Yeah. Into how you grew up and and who the most important, most influential person was, or or Creature. or being, yeah, right, you know, yeah. right. I love that. I don't know how so, I would have been without her. <laughs> so another question for you: In high school, what was your favorite subject? Uh, again, I was terrible at a lot of things. I was bad at languages. Apparently dyslexic people are bad at languages, bad at math, bad, bad at science. But I was very lucky to have grown up at a time when people cared about the arts in our schools. Yeah. And I was in theater. I was in music, uh, speech. Um, those are the only reason I had, I even made the top half of my class yeah. because I, I, I loved those. Also, I was very fortunate that we had something called the broadcast crew. Mm -hmm. And the broadcast crew was a group of students who every morning, for, there was a half hour of homeroom, we did a radio show. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was funny because there were only two girls on the crew. And um, I went one day, one of the hockey players handed me a no, uh, an announcement to read because mm -hmm. he knew I was one of the broadcast crew people. And I went in and, and I decided I'll do all the sports today. And I pulled all the sports announcements out of a basket. And a couple of minutes before the show starts, the guys started yelling at me. They said, you can't read sports stories. You're a girl. And I said, well, why can't I? So we're fighting. And right. the teacher comes in and goes, if Annie wants to read the sports, let her read the sports. We have a show to do, do it. Right. right. So from that day on, I kept stealing all the sports stories. Beautiful. And people around school realized it was me because we didn't use our last names. Right. But they, they would bring me sports stories. Awesome. And the, guy, the guys get mad about it, but the teacher sure. let me do it. And so they started uh, calling me Big Ann. Here's Big Ann with the sports. And they had a theme song. Now. They gave me a theme song and it was Mission Impossible. Dun, 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 you know, yeah. because how silly a woman doing sports, right? right? 
but what they didn't, I, they did it to offend me, but I really liked it. Yeah. And so I became the sportscaster. And in my high school yearbook, it says, this is your local sportscaster under my, my photograph. Yeah. Let us remember though, this was 1972. Right. And there weren't women sportscasters. There were a handful, but you know, it was like Phyllis George and I'm not dissing Phyllis George, but they would let her stand in her fur coat on the sidelines and interview a coach's wife. Yeah. That wasn't sportscasting to me. Right. And Maggie, Peggy Fleming would comment on Olympic skating, but yeah. in general, you didn't see women do this. So when my mother came up to me with her cat eye glasses and her spike heels, and she said, so it's time to pick a college. What do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. I said, I want to be a sportscaster. Right. And she said, don't be ridiculous. I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you. Right. Stop joking that, around. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, but that's what I want to do. And everywhere I went, I ran into the same problem when I went to college. The professor said, it will never happen. You will never be a sports reporter. You're a girl. Mm -hmm. got out of college with a degree in communications which as you know probably gets you nothing yeah. in the world and I couldn't nobody would even take an application from me wow. so I would spend uh, I went to Washington DC where I lived with my crazy I had a crazy aunt mm -hmm. and uh I no I couldn't even get an app you know I walked into places can I apply no go away and I ended up working in a bar in Georgetown which was great fun. Yeah. It was like being in a candy store all the time. Um, and for a couple of years, I, I gave up. I basically said, how am I going to be a sportscaster? And a weird thing happened. You know how there are those moments in your life where one little incident happens and it changes everything. It's why we I, do this podcast. Yeah, well, I've had a couple. Exactly why we do it. And I, I went with my aunt to a Washington Capitals game. Mm -hmm. And I grew up as an ice skater, by the way. I was an ice dancer when I was younger. I grew out of being obese, by the way, by the time I was in high school. But I, I was an ice skater. So in my heart, I, I had visions of gold medals, but I was incredibly mediocre and way too big, big to be an ice dancer. So I grew up wanting sports glory and understanding why people wanted it. So I did have the sports background and I skied and I swam and did some other things. Mm -hmm. But I'm in Washington, DC, I go to this hockey game and my aunt had a friend with her and he turns out he was an amateur ice hockey official, like for little kids, you know? Yeah. And he was bemoaning the fact that there weren't enough hockey officials. And let's face it, there aren't enough officials even today in most amateur sports. True. So he said, we really need officials. And my aunt said, oh, Annie skates, why don't you go be a referee? That's and I said, you. Yeah, I went, all right, right. So I applied and it, though I spent my life in a rink, it never occurred to me that figure skates and hockey skates were very different. <laughs> you know the difference? What's the difference? I found out in a very difficult way. Yeah. Yes, I went out on the ice. First time I ever wore my hockey skates. I'm doing five-year-old kids. You know, the yeah. ones with their, their uh, jerseys at their knees. Right. And their little sawed off sticks and their hats are crooked because their heads are big enough. Yeah. And uh, I went out to take that face off and I fell. Yeah. And then I couldn't get up because yeah. I'm used to sticking my toe picks yeah. in ice and hockey skates have no toe picks. Right. So I, I fell two more times trying to get up. And these I'll never forget the faces of these little kids staring down at me on the ice. This is like, our ref. Oh, my God. It was awful. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. I don't remember anything else about the rest of that game. But right. I remember the drive home and I realized that because I came before Title IX, mm -hmm. I didn't know enough about sports. I knew hockey because I grew up in an arena, mm -hmm. but I didn't know the intricacies of the five main team spectator sports. 
football, baseball, ice hockey, soccer, basketball. I didn't because I never played them. Right. So I decided then and there in that drive home that I was going to become a certified amateur official in those five sports. Awesome. And that I would do that for five years. And that eventually some forward thinking news director would go, wow, she knows a lot about sports because why? She had to read rule books and take tests and do scrimmages and will look at video to be an official. Right. And eventually that is exactly what happened. You're kidding me. Nope. I applied for, I was 28. My parents had an intervention where they came to Washington and begged me to go back to college because ah. I was such an embarrassment to the family. Oh my gosh. And you I can't said, make this stuff up. No, I'm not. And my mother, I, I said, no, mom. I said, I'm going to be a sportscaster. She said, no, you're not. You're nothing but a waitress. Right. And what am I going to tell my friends? Because the restaurant scheduled around all my games. Yeah. And uh, I did it. And I, I, you, you, I don't think you're old enough maybe to remember Broadcasting Magazine. There yeah. was a, there was a magazine came out right. weekly. Yeah. And in the back, there were one ads. Yep. And I'll you didn't know it. where yeah. they were going. It was just a blind box number. Yep. And it said, sportscaster wanted, send your stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, another strange thing happened. And maybe if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't have never been in TV. <laughs> At the restaurant, it was a restaurant where all kinds of rich and famous people hung out. Athletes yep. and musicians. And you know, Sylvester Stallone came through. And Maria Shriver shucked oysters there. And, and Arnold Schwarzenegger would come in. And so it was that kind of place. And one day there were, there were two people from NBC, a husband and wife team, and they were producing a show called Long Shots. Mm -hmm. And they, they were looking for four people to do 15 minute segments on or 12 minute segments about people who were one thing, but wanted to be something else. Right. There, was a, there was a truck driver who wanted to be a country Western singer. There was a woman who wanted to be a boxer. And back yeah. then women didn't box. So uh, they asked me one day, because I waited on them all the time. They said, hey, you want to be in our show? They said, you're here, you are a waitress. You want to be a sportscaster? I said, great. So they did a 12 minute piece on me. Wow. Uh, they followed me to my game. They went to a baseball game and a hockey game. They said, it's like a resume. Yes. But and video they, on they, television, on yes. NBC of all places. And then, and, and it won some awards that, that yeah. show. Oh, the thing is they, they took me to the NBC studios there and they had me do a broadcast with a former, uh, uh, Washington player, a football player. And, uh, I, they followed me doing a bunch of things. And uh, I had that video. Wow. So when I applied to that box number, which turned out to be in Columbus, Georgia. Oh, yay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and they said, be here in two weeks. Right. It's like, oh, my gosh, I have a job. What I had neglected to consider was the fact that I didn't know how to be on TV. Yeah. I know how to referee a football game, call a baseball game. I right. knew how to do those things. And I, I'm, I'm a real good at making drinks. I'm mm -hmm. a good bartender, but I knew nothing about being on TV really. And so I got to Columbus, Georgia on a Sunday night. My boss said, okay, you're going to start. You're going to be our, our sports director. You're going to anchor the six and 11 o'clock sports and you're going on Wednesday. Yeah. And it was a nightmare. Yeah. It was so bad because Knowing, I mean, I was very fortunate that the man I was working with, the other sports guy, was very nice and very helpful. Yeah. But do you remember how we, before teleprompters were digital, there were uh, like six sheets of paper in in carbon copy, which young yeah. people don't. Yeah. And so That's you hard. type out. That's yeah, hard. Yeah. Right. And and when you typed on it, you know, there were six copies and caught one was to go to the producer, one to the director, one to the other anchors, the teleprompter, whatever. So no one told me how that worked. And there was a real thin line down the middle of that page. I didn't know what it meant. 
So I just typed my scripts from one end to the other, not knowing that only the right column would show up on the teleprompter. Right. So there I am. They go, oh, so nice to have the first woman sportscaster in. Half of it. And I turn to the the teleprompter, no scripts. And I didn't know I was supposed to have a copy in my hand. Right. And it was the longest three minutes of my life. It was like being in a car accident because I don't remember a lot of it. Right. But. It turns out my mother's best friend was in Atlanta in a hotel and she turned on the TV and there I was. Of course she did. She called my mother and said, she's terrible. I just turned on TV. She's awful. Time for another intervention. (laughs) Yeah. And my mother would not see me on TV for two, three years. She refused. Yeah. Unbelievable. But, you know, you learn. You learn in front of everyone yeah and you'll never make that mistake again right you'll no, always be over on the no. right side and i ended up i worked for five tv stations over the years so i, I straightened it out eventually yeah. frankly i'm surprised they didn't fire me that night well baptism by fire that's so cool i love that story my goodness okay so you're in sport you're a sportscaster for five years right your dream come true oh 10 10 right i worked 10. for five tv stations I got you. Okay, so five TV stations for 10 years. Yeah. Okay. What was your favorite thing about those 10 years in sportscasting? My favorite thing, my I was never bored. Yeah. Every day was different. Um, and some days were great. And some days were a nightmare. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, when you're live on, on TV or radio, stuff happens. Yeah. You know, I, I plan something. Yeah. And I'm live on the set and they go, quick, dump a minute from your show. And you're speaking and they're right. telling you. So that was difficult, but it was also kind of exhilarating. Yeah. Um, I like that I met so many different people. I like that I I got to travel. Every two years you leave. It, it being being in TV or radio is kind of like being in minor league baseball. Mm-hmm. You start in A ball, then you move up to double A, get a little more money, triple mm-hmm. A, and and then the majors. And and but the only thing is, and when I was a teacher, I explained this to kids. I said, don't get attached to people. Don't get pregnant. Don't get married. Don't pick someone who's who's a police officer or a professor with tenure because you're going to have to leave. And you're going to have to leave quickly. Very often, I they, I would get a call from my agent who would say, okay, they're hiring you in Phoenix. Okay, bye, two weeks, got to be there. Yeah. So it, that's difficult, but still it's exciting. Yeah, so you I, never really settle. You never yeah. really settle because you're you yeah. got to be ready to go at a moment's notice, right? Yeah, and and the higher up you go, the more you make, mm-hmm. the the more exciting you know you get major league sports to cover. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it, but I will say that if I was, I, I don't think I could still do it today. Mm-hmm. I think it would get old. Well, it's a different world today than it was then. Yeah, yeah, but still, it was uh, actually too that that people on TV deal with social media stuff. I mean, I got slammed in the newspapers if I misspoke. But it wasn't constant. It wasn't like Twitter and Instagram. Right. That. 24 hours a day, seven days a yeah. week. Yeah. So, I mean, I could go home and even though they wrote me up in the, because I was a freak. I mean, there really were almost no women sportscasters. Yeah. So um, it, I was constantly being watched. And if I misspoke, um, they made a big deal out of it. Yeah. And, and I but had you to were just, a trailblazer, you um, know, and there's, you probably, you probably blazed a trail for a lot of women that are now in sportscasting. Know. I, I find that uh, young people today, and I've taught in high school and college, that they they don't seem to understand what it was like. Yeah. They seem to think, oh, there's all kinds of jobs for women in sports. I'm like, not really. Yeah. There really aren't. There are just so many more uh, outlets. I mean, in my time, there were three network stations in a city and one 
independent one. And right. there were maybe two or three sportscasters at those stations. That's all there were. Yeah, it was Let ABC, NBC, jobs. and CBS, right? Yes, and, and yeah. usually some local, you know, small station. But no ESPN, no Fox. Yeah. If you were lucky, there'd be 10 to 12 jobs. Today, right. there's tons of jobs with all the outlets that are doing it. But, you know, have women, you know, progressed? I don't think so. Because the, the big job they give them is the dumbest job in sports casting, the sideline reporter. Yeah. It shouldn't even exist. Who wants to put a microphone in some coach's face and say, how do you feel, coach? You're losing 52 to 6. Right. No one wants to do that. And on top of that, they almost only talk about medical things. Yeah. I think he tore his, you know, his Achilles. Yeah. yeah. Or he's got a knee injury. Let's put nurses on the sidelines with microphones. Right. That would make much more sense yeah. because they rarely talk about football or whatever. So that bothers me because I, I, why we can't put women in the booth to do play by play in color. It's not brain surgery, but we still don't do that. Yeah. Do you remember when Andrea Kramer and uh, I can't think of her name, Gail Gardner, maybe. Um, I don't know if it was Gail, but they they did an NFL game like in 2015. They said, oh, we're going to have a woman's team in the booth. Mm -hmm. I went, yay. It was a Monday night football game. Mm -hmm. Turns out when you turned on the game, it was uh, Tony Romo and uh, my brain. I can't think who. Uh, oh, Aikman. Jim no, it was Aikman, actually. And they were on there and they said, oh, in, if you want to hear the women, you have to go to this other station. The and other channel. Yeah. So Romo, so Romo and Nance worked together. Yep. Aikman, oh, okay. Aikman and Buck worked together. Buck, that's who it was. Right. I'm sorry. So Aikman Buck is play-by-play, play, Aikman's color. Right, right. Romo's color, um, Nance is, is play-by-play. See what happens when you get old. Oh, it's um, fine. You're fine. But uh, okay. anyway, the point that was- That happens to be my bailiwick, by the way. I'm, I'm a huge, huge, huge monster football fan. So- I, yeah, so that kind of stuff I can help you with. Well, do you remember when they did this? Do you oh, remember when they got the women? And, and the women weren't even at the game. Okay. They were like hundreds of miles away and and no, almost no one turned in. Yeah. I mean, it was ridiculous. And do you know that in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, they have a women's section now, women in football. And they have the headphones of those women who called the first NFL game called by women. Their headphones are there. Do you, do you realize how ridiculous that is? I I have no idea that that even happened. Oh, yeah. What? Their broadcast? No, not. I knew the broadcast. I remember the broadcast. And I remember we tuned in and it was Aikman and Buck. Right. Right. And you had to go to a you had to go to a to a, a, a sister station yes. or sister channel. Pardon me. You had to go to sister channel in order to in order to listen to the to the women do their but the nfl has pumped that up like it's such a big deal and has have any woman i mean maybe one or two but i don't think on an nfl broadcast women have done it yet i so don't I'm, know that there's been any nfl there have been college so there yes. are college there are college play-by-play -play, women doing play-by-play -play announcing two, maybe yeah, there's, there's only a couple but there have been um, I don't think I remember any NFL games being. No, being, and uh, they act like it's the same with officiating. Um, well, it's also it's also like the Rooney Rule, right? Where if you're if they're going to hire if they're going to hire a coach, they have to go out and they have to interview a couple of minorities, right? right in order to hire a coach. And women count as minorities. Yeah, regardless of what the race of that coach is. I mean, right. come on, you know. Well, it's the same thing that that the Arizona Cardinals did. They had a woman who came in and was an assistant coach for them. Yep. And yep. 
But guess what? She really wasn't. She was an intern who worked preseason. And when the real season came around, she wasn't hired. And guess what? Her jacket that her Cardinals jacket is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And and just just to add the the last one, my friend Shannon was the first woman um, to call an NFL game. Uh, She was a wing. She was like a side judge. And uh, it was during a strike, Mm -hmm. uh, an official strike. And guess what? Her hat and her whistle are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but they never gave her a job. Unbelievable. So you see how they're, but see, the NFL is not stupid because they understand that most of the people buying their products, you know, their jerseys and hats are women. Yeah. And that's why they're pushing this. Aren't we great? Let's do flag football. Let's get women involved because yeah. we're the ones that control the money and buy the stuff for our boyfriends and wives and our boy, whoever we're buying them well, for. You know, a lot of men, a lot of men are not going to go out and buy jerseys for themselves, oh. but, the women, but the women in their lives will go buy them and give them to them for, for birthdays and Christmas and right. Right. And look at all the ads you see on, on the NFL. Now they, they're doing their own little PR things with girls playing. And remember the days when you could watch t- watch an NFL game and there'd be cheerleaders all over the place? Every other shot was a cheerleader. You don't see that anymore, do you? Because the NFL realized that was bad PR, that it was offending women. I don't mind. You want to put some hot guys scantily dressed? You can show them to me on the sideline. Just be fair. Right. You know? So NFL is not doing that. You don't see the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders as much as you did, do you? No, you don't. So uh, yeah, they know where they know who's paying for things. Yeah. Though they're getting it. They're coming around. And you know, honestly, the NFL is pretty smart. Now okay. they're a little, they're a little slow. I grant you that, but they've been pretty smart in terms of the outreach that they've done. And, you know, they did a thing not too long ago where they um, where they had a uh, like a class or a set of classes for, that women could go to to learn about football. right to learn about football right to, to, yeah and a lot of women know about football yeah um, but yeah I said I, I've been in a I was an official for forty years yeah. I, I retired from football in two thousand nineteen that's what I miss by the way I don't miss TV yeah. I miss football I miss yeah. Friday night I just went to and I'm embarrassed to even say these words I just went to my fiftieth high school reunion in New Jersey. Wow. And they let me flip the coin at the f- Friday night football before our, you know, big party we had. And right. I was so excited. I forgot how much I missed it. I forgot, you know, they played the national anthem and the kids were out there and we're all standing at attention. And I went, I, this is what I miss. Yeah. I, I don't miss baseball so much. Uh, if I never get hit with another baseball, that will be fine. Yeah. Um, I am always amazed when you go to a pro game and, and there's a line drive into the seats and people are reaching for it. I'm hiding under the chair. <laughs> i've been hit probably with 100 baseballs in my yeah. life you know yeah. foul balls stray pitches whatever and uh, umpires aren't allowed to stop the balls you know it's not right. like you if you grew up playing you're going to stop it we're not allowed to touch them right. so they have to hit us yeah. and it's horrible so yeah, yeah i i i'd rather get run over by three football players than be hit with a single baseball i don't blame you yeah you've been hit with one i bet i have actually yeah, yeah. so you know i um when my son, who's now 25, was a freshman in high school, um, they came to me, the founder of the of the charter school system that he, the high school was a part of, came to me and asked me if I would join the board. And I had a radio show back then. And I had had him on my show as a regular guest, the founder. And uh, he came to me and asked me if I would join the board of directors. And I told him, of course I would, you know. And he said, and by the way, you know, 
we really need an announcer in the booth for our home football games. Would you consider doing that? And I said, you know, I, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll consider it. So I went out and hung out with the guy that was the announcer and he was absolutely terrible. They tend was, to be. He was terrible. And he was so unbelievably convinced that he needed to stay the speed, the, the announcer for the team that I was basically his assistant for a season and a half. And it was actually not a bad thing because my son was a freshman playing JV football. And when he was down there playing football and I was in the booth, I was cross-eyed and drooling the entire time. Because when you spend your entire life protecting a child oh, and yeah. then they put pads on and they get out there and there are people taking cheap shots at them and and you know i mean it's it's hard it's hard to it's hard to put together a coherent sentence anyway but it's really hard to put a coherent sentence together when your heart is up in your throat and you're you know you're breaking out in a sweat and you got veins popping out of your forehead and you know you're just worried sick right um so i got to a place to where i just basically asked him i said i i'll do it but i'm not calling my son's games i just there's no way right and so I didn't call his games. I, I was a spotter and I, I was in the booth and I helped. But um, the next season he didn't play. He decided one season was enough for him and he quit He quit football. And so the next year I became their announcer and I've done it for 11 seasons now. And it's I still do it today. So um, what, the Friday night lights thing is a real thing. It and is a real thing. I miss nobody, nobody on the planet gets more excited about Friday night lights than I do. Yeah, okay. Some, I'm some sorry. Of our games are on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, we have because we don't have enough officials. We have varsity games Thursday, yeah. Friday, Saturday. Yeah. But I have a question for you because you're a football guy. How many yeah. referees are on a football field? Well, we have four officials. We have a referee. We have a I'm 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 serious. We have two side two side judges, and then we have a an umpire. Again, uh, how many referees are on the field? Oh, one. Yes, There's thank you. Yeah. Nobody knows that. I, oh, I do, yeah. Here's my first uh, 14 years as an official, I was a wing. I was yeah. a side yeah. and uh, or a, lines, a linesman kept the chains. Yeah. And uh, every year I would get thrown off crews because the guys would say, we're never going to get the big games with you on our crew because you're a woman. It was right. the same crap I dealt with in TV. Mm -hmm. And they were right. I hated them for it. So one year I they, they said, anybody who'd like to make a crew referee a crew uh stand up and and you know uh, other officials will come to you i'm in a meeting with 400 officials yeah. and I stood up and said i'm going to be a referee and there's silence and and uh because you know, honestly most officials don't want to be the referee because yeah. it's like you're the glorified secretary but whatever happens with the crew it's your fault yeah so on my last the whole rest of my career i was the referee and crew chief wow um and i i love putting on my white hat and having that r on my back even though I'd walk out on fields and if the coach, so when the coaches got to know me, it wasn't a big deal. But when there was a new coach, my partners would start to laugh. They go, Annie, there's the look, the yep. look. And the look was a coach staring at me going, they couldn't send a real referee. I yeah. mean, it, it happened. And they would come over and they wouldn't even talk to me. I'm the white hat. I'm taking the notes. And they talked to my partners and my partners would go, you have to talk to her, sir. Yeah. And it would, it, it was never got any better, sadly. Yeah. Um, but I, that is what I miss Friday night yeah. football. So referees and I don't necessarily have the best relationship, 
there. Um, well, they, you know, I'm a bit biased. I can be, I can be a little partisan and um, they want me to be neutral. And because you are part of the crew. You, it's right. like the guys that hold the, the chains. Right. They're usually kids on the team, right. on the home team. They can't cheer. Yeah. They're not allowed. They're part of the officiating. Well, you're on the opposing team's sideline. Oh, hell yeah. Then then right? you have fights. Yeah. But the idea is you as an announcer, because I've been in these situations before where the announcer sounded partisan. And yeah. that's a big problem for us yeah. because it works. It gets the crowd all worked yeah. up. And, you know, I've had police escorts to my car. Mm -hmm. I've been spit on. I've had my tires knifed. So we don't need any more aggravation. Yeah. So, I understand why they might have given you a hard time. I'm a homer. Yeah. I'm a homer. It's as I'm good not. as it gets. I'm so proud of our kids, you know. I know, uh, but you know you have to be careful. But I do. I get I do. I, I like this last season, I was warned twice. And you know, I one time he uh one of the refs actually accused me of inciting that's the problem. The other team. Whether you meant I, it or not. Well, I but I all I said was that it took half of our defense, half of their defense to take our runner down, to tackle our, our running back. And it was true. It I was know. half of their defense. Okay. But you do understand. I'm no, sure. I know. I know. But it, but that was factually correct. Right. I didn't say, you know, look how awesome our running back is. It took half their defense to tackle him. What I said was our running, you know, the running back was number two, right? I call him the one man wrecking crew, Right. And Nicholas, Nicholas Patterson's is, or Pattinson, Patterson's his name. And I said, you know, number two, one man record crew, Nicholas Patterson with the carry and half of the, half of the defense made the tackle. That's what I said. I didn't say anything bad about the defense, but he accused me of taunting. And so, you know, we got a complaint. Did he flag you? Huh? No, they didn't flag, but, okay. but we got a something. complaint filed. And he said, the, he said the next game that I announced that I do that on, He's going to flag us. And I'm like, okay. So the next game that he was the ref, I went down and shook his hand and introduced myself. And I said, you know, I just need to ask you what I said was factually correct. I wasn't trying to make the other team. I wasn't trying to incite the other team or taunt them or any of that kind of thing. This is literally what I said. And one of the other officials, the side judge that was there walked up and said, you know what ref, honestly, sir, He's he's saying the correct thing. He's he's telling you the truth. He was the and the ref ended up apologizing to me and telling me that he was having a bad night that night. And he was he was yelling at everybody. It could be that, that a lot of times you've been down on football fields. A lot of times things are happening that the oh, general yeah. people don't hear or yeah. see. And our job is to make sure it doesn't become a mess. Well, it's a de-escalation. It's yeah, a and so right? he went. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's probably why he asked you to cease and desist. Yeah, well, that's all he was doing. I just, yeah. I just didn't want. I didn't want to get flagged for saying something that was factual. But you know what I mean. So yeah. the next time that the next time that happened, and there were six, literally six players in on the tackle, I just said there were six defenders in on that in on that stop for that for that team and left it alone, right? Yeah. And he was okay. So, but I, I made sure I went down and talked to him about it. Cause you know, I don't, I'm not trying to upset people. I'm not trying to upset the other side. I wasn't trying to brag about our, about our, our running back. I did say at one point that he refuses to go down, which I sort of regretted saying, 
And I sort of stopped saying it after I, you know, because you you say it and then you go, right? You know this because you were an announcer, right? So anyway, yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah, it, 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 you know, a lot, there are a lot of things in motion when you're on a football field. It's not like baseball where you follow the ball. That's where everything's happening. Right. In football, there's 22 people coming in, plus yeah. the people on the sidelines and the coaches. And, and I, I don't think the average fan understands how difficult it is to get it right. They also don't understand that when we don't throw a flag, that's also a call. Yeah. It's calls and no calls. They're all the same. We make hundreds of calls, no calls yeah. in the game. And, and it's, it, it's constant concentration. And no, we don't do it right every time. But I don't know of a single official that doesn't want to do it right every time. Well, sometimes we're tired. Sometimes nope. like your guy, we yeah. have, we're having a bad night or we don't Nobody's feel perfect. good. Nobody's you know? perfect. Well, Nobody's but we're perfect. supposed to be. We're well, never supposed that, to be a bitch. We're never team, supposed to, you know. Yeah, that team on the other side um, was giving our kids the business. So, so when they would make a tackle they would hit them in the face with a forearm. When they would make a tackle, they'd poke their eye out. When they were making a tackle, they'd, they'd, they'd shove them in the, they'd hit them. And in what the, were your players doing? Nothing, oh. nothing. Okay. No, I'm not joking. I was watching. I was being careful. Right, I'm, just, I'm just saying that down on the field uh, and when that stuff starts to happen, that's like officials go to like DEFCON 4, yeah. you know, because we're like, if this ends up a mess, yeah. I'm going to be up all night writing reports. Okay. And as the referee, that's my job. I'm like, I don't want to write any reports, people. Let's keep a lid on this. Let's, you know, knuckle down here and make sure that we're keeping everyone safe yeah. because amateur sports, high school sports, college sports, it's all about keeping people safe. Yeah. It's I not NFL. That. And so my job is to make sure no one is harmed. And, and that's what people don't seem to understand. The other thing that drives me crazy, not that you asked, but um, how how high school coaches and fans have no idea what the rules are. Yeah. They'll be screaming, that pass was uncatchable. I'm like, that's not a rule here. That's a Sunday rule. This right. is Friday. We right. have different rules. And, right. and maybe you should, I'm the one that had to read the rule books and take the, I had to take a test every year and had to get above a 90, a national football test. Did any of them take the test? No, the coaches don't take it. And they think NFL rules are the same as high school rules. And that's what starts craziness happening. But as an official, our job is to make sure everyone's safe and that we all we do the best we can and be as unbiased as possible and walk off the field feeling like, well, we did our job. Did we get 100% of the calls right? Of course we didn't. But we maybe got 98 and that's a pretty good day at the office. Well, I felt I felt pretty good afterwards because our coach called me and he's one of the most level-headed people you've ever met in your life. He called me afterwards and he said, listen, the athletic director is going to be calling you because there was a complaint by the ref about you. And I just want you to know something. I don't want you to change one bit. You're doing absolutely everything right. I don't believe that that what he's what he's saying is justified and you need to not change at all. You are our guy. And I really appreciated that. But it even it even motivated me more to go down and shake the guy's hand at the next game that he called because I wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page. You know, that's I'm exactly not, what you should I'm not done. the ref's enemy. I'm the guy up in the box going, OK, we've got a call. And the ref doesn't have, with the exception of one game that I've done in 11 years, the ref doesn't have a, a PA system. He doesn't have oh, a no mic, right? Okay. So he's doing signals. And I'm literally saying dead ball, false start, offense, right? 
I'm literally reading what he's saying and I'm announcing That's it. That's why so we do that. <laughs> yeah, so that everybody knows what it is, right? right? And they appreciate that, you know? And they tell me that they appreciate that. Um, and now we've gotten to a point to where these guys show up and they're like, oh my goodness, Mike, we're so glad. We were so excited when we saw you guys on our on our schedule because we knew you were going to be the, the announcer. We're so excited to do this. And, you know, right? The, these guys and I have a really, really good relationship. So that's that's one of the reasons why when he when he filed that complaint, it was like, what? You know what I mean? But it's true. I get a little fired up. That is very true. That Friday Night Lights thing is a real thing. There's adrenaline there. There's oh, adrenaline there, right? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, there was the first game that Michael, so Michael was a freshman playing JV his first season. And there was a, a time that I was, I wasn't announcing yet. I was running the chain, the chain gang. Um, and I was in charge of the chain gang. So they were supposed to do what I said. Right. And I explained to him, I said, listen, when the play comes our way, drop your, drop your, your sticks and get out of the way because they're in pads and they're coming full speed and, and you're going to <laughs> get killed. Right. Move. Right. There was a part of me, I used to play football, right. There was a part of me that stalled for a second. Like I was going to, like, I wanted to be in on the contact. It was really sick. And it was like, yes, right. All of a sudden I realized what was going on, you know, and I, and I got out of the way, but it was like, geez, you know, it, it, there's something about being on that, on that field and all that action taking place and, and wanting to be, you know, your adrenaline starts flowing and you want to be a part of it again. You want to be 18 again. You know what I mean? So anyway, it was, it was, um, it was cool. So I've thoroughly enjoyed it and it really is a real thing. Okay. So you do broadcasting sports, sports broadcasting, right? You're a, you're a, a referee for all those years. Mm -hmm. Then what happens? Well, when I was pushing 40, mm -hmm. I suddenly couldn't get a job anywhere in the country. Yeah because I wasn't pretty enough to be in front of a camera anymore. Well, I think you're pretty enough to be in front oh, of a camera. Oh, you're sweet. But, but when they- you're on my camera. Yeah, well, when, uh, when the target audience is 18 to 34-year-old males, the idea is when you're over 35, no one's looking at you anymore. And I tell that story because people go, no. I said, yes, that is exactly how it is. It, you know, because they didn't, you know, they don't hire you for your for your intelligence or your sports knowledge. And I and because I mentioned that, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. When I was at ESPN, I anchored Sports Center. And um, you know, I'd been officiating for years. And and one night a production assistant comes into the newsroom. Uh, we're, we're on the set. Mm -hmm. And we're coming out of a commercial break. And usually you get to see your highlights before you go on and you put them in your own words. Cause we have production assistants who cut the highlights and bring them to your desk. Right. So I, unfortunately, sometimes games end late and mm -hmm. you're already on the air. Sure. So this kid comes running in and slides some highlights to me and the red light went on and I looked at the highlights and went, Oh, now let's go to Wrigley field. And the first shot was a fan getting hit with a, with a, uh, in the, in the front row. And it said, oh, a fan at Wrigley Field gets hit with a foul tip. Now, I knew that was wrong. Right. But I had to go to the next highlight. 
And I'm, my whole time, my brain's going, crap, I said a foul tip and that's incorrect. So at the end of every sports center, there's something called a post-mortem. Oh, yeah. Everybody involved in the show goes to a big conference room. We sit around a table. We talk about what went well, what went poorly, what can we do better? Right. So I raised my hand and I pointed at the young production assistant, Rich. And I said, Rich, I need some, you know, I need you to understand something um, about that first play. And he said, yeah, the foul tip. I said, well, yeah, but that's a problem because it wasn't a foul tip. It was a foul ball. Right. And he goes, well, what's the difference? I went, well, foul ball goes into dead territory. It's a dead ball, which right. means if I'm stealing second base, I have to go back. Right. Okay. But a foul tip is a ball that goes from, from the bat to the catcher's glove, is caught. Sometimes it can go to the pitcher, but that's that never right. And they go like this and they say strike, but it's a live ball. Right. If I'm stealing home, I have the umpire has to wait. We have to see if we have a play at home. Mm -hmm. There's silence. There's 12 of us sitting around this table. Usually everybody talks at once and they're all staring at me. And and I said, the, the kid got mad and stood up and he goes, you're just being a picky B-I-T-C-H. Oh, geez. And I went, no, I'm an umpire. Right. And I know the difference. And some people out there know I'm an umpire and I don't want to make that kind of mistake. Right. He stomped out. Not one person defended me at the All Sports Network, right? And the next day I got called into my boss's office and I was told to apologize to Rich because I hurt his feelings. Oh, no. I never raised my voice. All I said was a foul ball and a foul tip are two, are two different, different things. things. Yeah. And they didn't care. They wow. were angry that I questioned anybody. Oh, my goodness. So it, that was common, that kind of thing. Wow. That's crazy. I know. So after 40 years, or you're you're after you're approaching 40 and you're not able to get a job, right? Then what happens? Um, I was in the middle of a divorce. I was $33,000 in debt. Mm -hmm. And the house we were renting in Connecticut was foreclosed upon. Wow. I opened my door to a sheriff because the man who owned the house who I rented it from for almost two years never paid the mortgage wow and the sheriff said you have 24 hours to get out yeah and i went what yeah. and and so uh my contract had not been renewed um and that's a different story also had to do with baseball i think mm -hmm. but they uh i i we put everything in storage i had two big dogs and four cats and nowhere to go yeah and a friend of mine, uh, a dear friend, she said, come, come to Phoenix and come live with me. I said, you live in a condo. She had a brand new condo. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, I have two big dogs and four cats. She goes, put them in the car and come. And uh, so I came back to Phoenix and my old boss at Channel 10, I worked here for two years. He goes, I'll have a job for you in four months. And I'm like, great. That's great. I'm going to be back in TV in Phoenix because I love Phoenix. Well, then one day I opened the newspaper and he got fired. Oh, geez. And and uh, I didn't have a job. Yeah. And my agent finally said, look, I don't know what you want, but I couldn't get a job. So I the, I went to a sports bar to try to be a bartender. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget, I told, I told the manager, I said, look, I can entertain your clients, whether they're sober or not. Mm -hmm. I can talk sports with them all day. And he looked me up and down and said, I don't think so. Wow. And I realized he wanted a 24-year-old in a short skirt and a push-up bra. Yeah. And and that was kind of a rude awakening. And then I, I realized the only thing I knew how to do to make money was to be an official. Right. 
So I went back to football and baseball, which are played year round here in Arizona. And I went from anchoring Sports Center to working Pop Warner football and Little League baseball. And I didn't want to see anybody I know. I did a whole lot of feeling sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. And all I did was complain. Oh, my husband's an alcoholic. I can't get a job in TV. And a very strange, another one of those strange things happened. Uh, I was sent out to work a baseball game with a man, I, an umpire I'd never met before. I went out and uh, he turns out he was, uh, he became my baseball partner for five years. He was wow. a Vietnam veteran, war hero, shot, limped, had post-traumatic stress, Agent Orange poisoning, which eventually killed him at 60. Mm-hmm. But for five years, we were partners, which meant, now I don't know if you ever noticed the officials, like if you're not doing a varsity game, you dress in the parking lots and, and you're there an hour before the game and an hour after the game. And so we talked all the time. And mm-hmm. my buddy Don was a very troubled Vietnam veteran, father of eight, wonderful, kind man who did two tours in Vietnam, special forces. And I would complain about my life. And then he'd tell me war stories. Wow. And after a while, I went, I'm a jerk. Yeah. I'm a complete I got to stop jerk. complaining. Yeah. I'm like, how can I be whining when right. this man went through such horrible things? Yeah. And yet he never complained, you know? And he always felt it was his, he, his need to, to protect me, yeah. which was pretty funny sometimes. Big man, hands the size of hams, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, slowly but surely, I started to realize that the things I thought were important were not. Yeah. And I, some other people I knew kept saying, why aren't you a teacher? Why aren't you a teacher? I said, I don't want to be a teacher. They said, you've spent your life officiating kids. And so at 42, I went back to college, wow. got my teaching cert, and uh, got my master's degree. And I ended up teaching in an inner city, the most inner city school in the state of Arizona. Title I, all my kids lived in poverty, uh, gangs, drugs, <laughs> weapons, pregnancy, foster care, everything you can think of. And, and slowly but surely, I, I realized how spoiled I was and how much I had. And um, it was funny because when I became a teacher, I was a hard ass. Mm -hmm. I was in the media, right? You're on time. There's never an excuse. And, and one day I I taught a video production class. My kids did a show called Jaguar news and uh, one day I was giving them all crap because they were late. Their stories weren't done right. And they all got up and left. Every kid in my class left. Mm. And I stood in front of an empty classroom and I cried. Oh. And this little teacher had been teaching for like 30 or 40 years. She came in and patted me on the shoulder. She goes, it'll be all right. It will be all right. And then another teacher took me aside and she said, have you ever considered being nicer? I go, nice. There's no nice in a newsroom. There's no nice on a football field. I'd never had to be nice. Right. He said, you know, you might be a better teacher if you learn to be nicer. Hmm. And then one more thing happened. I was teaching a class. This kid was late every single day. So I got frustrated. I took him out. I read him the riot act and he's looking at his shoes. He goes, I'm so sorry, Miss Montgomery. I'm sorry I was late, but I, I was sleeping on my uncle's couch last night and I didn't know the bus system because I hadn't been there before. And I said, what do you mean you were sleeping on your uncle's couch? He said, well, I never know from one night to the next where I'm going to be sleeping. And I went, this child is homeless. And something switched in my brain. And I went, okay, I need to change. I need to look at each kid individually. I need to figure out what they're dealing with and to see how I can help. 
hour of questions. Uh, you know, it, it so changed my dynamic of what I thought was so important in life. None of the stuff I thought was important was at all. And uh, the fascinating thing about all that is that I was unable to have children. And that bothered me for a while. And then when I was 55, I mean, at, at the end of the school year, I worried about my students because they lived in abject poverty, ghetto, bad stuff. So I would always put my phone number on the board. I'd say, if you get in trouble, call me. I'll try to help you if I can. Now, they always told you never to do that, but I did anyway. Right. And I got a call from one of my students. He was just a quiet, little, shy kid who I barely knew. And um, he was in foster care. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to have you put back in my class. Because kids could take my class year after year, so I got to know them pretty well. And I said, uh, Brandon, I'm going to put you in my class next year, so I, I can't wait to see you. Right? And uh, he didn't show up. And a couple of weeks went by and I was very upset because I didn't know where he was. His phone number was disconnected. And uh, he called me mm -hmm. and he said, Miss Montgomery, I'm hungry. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they lock up the food every morning and I'm in a new school and they didn't get the paperwork. So they won't give me lunch. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad there weren't kids in my class because I started swearing up a storm, marching up and down the hall. And this teacher who told me I should be nicer came right. out. She goes, what's the matter? And I explained what happened. She goes, well, if you care so much, then you call the foster care people and say he can come and live with you. Yeah. He said, don't be ridiculous. I'm right. 55. I've never been a mother. Right. And she said, then stop complaining. Right. And I called foster care and I ended up with four kids and I'm a grandmother today. Yep. And they were all my students yeah. at some point. Yeah. So, I have I had a champion for the foster care system on last week, and it was one of the most emotionally gut-wrenching interviews I've ever done in my life. The, the stories will rip your heart out. It I mean, just, I, he I have two kids who are who were my legal foster children. I have two that one that was mostly homeless, yeah. and and one that chose to call me mom. Yeah. And we don't care who, you know, we don't label people here. When oh. It's funny when people say, well, do you have any children? I used to mumble my way through, well, I'm a foster mom. And, but when I went to foster mom school, which is a thing, I went for 10 weeks to foster mom school. Um, they say, you don't call children step. You don't call them foster. You call them your sons and daughters. And that's right. what we do here. They're my right. our sons and daughters. Yeah. So um, yeah. And I look back and I go, if, if I'd stayed in TV, I would never have been a mother. So I think life zigs and zags on us and 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 we we have to be open to that. It's all part of the plan. I wouldn't change much of anything, but I would have been nicer sooner. I think that's what I would change. Yeah. So, but, yeah I taught but, 20 years. Here's the thing, you'd have never come to that epiphany if you hadn't been. No. Right. So You're if, right. right. That had to happen. It it that's part of life and it's part of a, a lesson that's learned. And something that people that are listening to this interview are going to learn because of you. That nice. You that's why we're doing. That's why we're doing what we're doing, yeah. right? Well, I, I have to say, uh, I, I it wasn't easy. I, again, I did a lot of feeling sorry for myself because wow, I'm not on TV. Poor me. Yeah. Um, but honestly, I look back on it now, I wouldn't change anything. No, it was grounding for you. It was. It made it was me absolutely crazy. grounding for you. And here's the really weird part. I am an author, as as you know. Mm -hmm. um, I have five traditionally published books with another one coming out in the in June. June. I never write about sports. Yeah. I write about societal issues like child abuse and domestic violence and cults and and uh, 
uh, PTSD and many of the things that I, uh, rape uh, because many of my students were raped and by family members and nobody cared. Um, and, and so all of these, these societal issues I ran into as a teacher became the basis for a lot of my books. Yeah. And people are always shocked. They're like, you don't write about sports? I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah. It was almost a past life for you. It, it, you know what? It, it, it is. And it, it's, it used to be sports were my world from the time I was five till I was, I don't know, 60, maybe. Um, because I continued to officiate, right. but they weren't the most important part anymore. And I'll be honest with you. I read the sports page, but I skim it. I used to read every word religiously. Yeah. Now I'm like, eh, not so much. So yeah, I, I, I've had a fabulous life. I tell the kids, if I went down in a plane crash, I've had a great time, have a party in my honor yeah. because I can't say I've missed a whole lot. You haven't, you've done a lot of living. I have. You've done a lot of living and you've also done to your credit, a lot of discovering. You've, you discovered, you've discovered parts of you that you didn't know existed. You are absolutely right. Right? Yep. 30 years ago, if I had come walked up to you and said, you're going to be a grandma, you'd have gone, huh, I don't think so. I can't have kids. Right. Right. And then I, you know, it, it, it always amazes me. My oldest son. Um, and the other thing is my oldest son's Hispanic. I have, I have a black daughter, a black son, and a white son, and a Hispanic son. And so it's it's kind of like the rainbow world here. Right. I just now, I was just thinking colors of the rainbow. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And my Hispanic son is is came from very, very bad story. Um, but at least once a week he texts me and says, I love you, mom. You know, it's real important. And I didn't come from a family where people ever said that. Yeah. I'm Irish and we don't do that. <laughs> and no, we don't. And so I'm very lucky that my partner taught me how to say I love you back because my world, you didn't do that. Nobody hugged me when I walked in the door. My parents right. weren't like that. And, and so if he hadn't taught me how to respond, I would have disappointed the kids. So, uh, yeah, I've learned a lot of things. I think we have to be open that life's going to keep changing and maybe we have to keep changing with it. Yeah. What happens and, if we stay static? You know, I have to say something. Thank God for that teacher that came in and patted you on the shoulder and said, it's going to be okay. I know. Who then turned to you and said, you know what? You can stop complaining if you're not going to do something about it. No, two different teachers, well, two different teachers, both named Anne. Right. right. Like, yeah. She said, you know, and, and it was funny because the, the woman who told me to be nicer is the nicest person on the planet. Right. And, and she found me abrasive, which I was. I was, but you know, you spend time in a newsroom. Everybody's that way. Well, There's you spend time around. on a football field. You're going to be yes. a little abrasive too. Let's be honest, right? Or an umpire. I mean, sure. I've got people screaming at me. What am right. I supposed to do? Be nice back. So right. my whole world was newsroom sports crazy. No one was very nice. And as an official, no one's nice to me. Right. You know, I, I used to think it was because I was a woman. No, right. I was dressed like an umpire, which right. means I hate me. So deeper yeah. stripes, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So, so when I, then I'm dealing with children who are just having horrible situations in yeah. their lives, it never occurred to me to behave any differently. Yeah. So yes, I learned. Took a and while. You know what's amazing is, and this is what this, this is what this other um, author talked about too, is these children. And, and I, I have a, a very good friend that is a, was a social worker for 40 years. And she used to tell me, she's like, thank God for foster parents. It's hard. They're the people that at one o'clock in the morning, 
and we have nowhere to go with this child. At one o'clock in the morning, they get that call and they come get them. And when nobody has loved them in their life, that foster parent does. And what it really boils down to is these are children that just want to be loved. That's it. It's not, it's not complicated. It's just love them. Well, but that's not enough. It, you know, people think it's enough. They get frustrated when they adopt a kid or they take in a kid, especially I took in teenagers mm -hmm. who had lots of baggage. It's right. one thing to take in a brand new infant who hasn't had to deal with anything. Right. But Something else with all that programming. Yeah. It, it's, it's difficult and you can love them all you want, but you also have to understand maybe you need to take them to a psychologist. They need to go to a doctor. They need to go to a dentist. They need to go to special ed reading and and so a love is in and of itself is great but it's not enough because these kids have so many issues to begin with um, and you got to work your way through them and i'm i'm not going to tell you i was a perfect mom i wasn't so here's the thing knowing that they need a psychologist knowing they need a dentist knowing they need a doctor and and go and following through and making that happen that is love and no, no, I agree with you. I agree it is. But I, I think uh, people who have never adopted or been involved in foster care think that if I just love them, that's all they no, need. No, no, it's not an end-all be-all, but it's if you love them enough, you'll ask questions, yeah. right? If you love them enough, you'll find out what's going on with them. If you love them enough, you'll get to the bottom, bottom line. You'll find out they're hurting. You'll find out that they need dental care. You'll find out that they need to talk to a psychologist. You'll find those things out, but you got to love them enough to ask. Yeah. You know, and that's, it, that's it was the hard. Thing. That yeah, was the hardest hard. job I've ever had. It is now, hard. Teaching is teaching's yeah. the hardest paid yeah. job. Yeah. But, but being a parent, well, my goodness. Yeah. But you, you know, every day you're proving yourself, right? Yeah. Every single day. Cause they're, you know, these kids, when they come to you, by the time they come to you, their program that the adults in their life that that they think are going to love them, they're leaving. That's right. There's a there's a there's a timer, okay? And depending upon what time it is, they're out of here, and I'm going to have somebody else. That's how they're programmed because that's their. And they do it. Then yeah, it's their coping I, mechanism. Two of my boys, um, they stomped out of here at yeah. like 18, um, all angry because they were 18, yeah. and then they both came back. Yeah. Like nothing ever changed. My oldest son, I didn't see him for a year, broke my heart. He was yeah. 18. And then one day he walked through the door, hey mom, how you doing? Gave me a big hug and we've been fine ever since. But yeah. you have to let them expand and grow. And Well, they have to walk out into that big, beautiful world and figure out that nobody loves them as much as you do. Yeah, I think that's maybe what happened. That's it. Yeah. It's, that's it, it slaps them in the face and they go, oh, look at how good I had it, right. you know? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Let me ask you a question. I know you have a book coming out in June. We're going to have, come, have you come back. Is there anything you'd like to cover before we wrap up? Um, before I'd like to cover, uh, let me see. Uh, I, I would like to tell people that they should appreciate it when people tell them no. Yeah. No, no can be a gift. For me, it was a gift. Every time people said, you can't be a sportscaster, you can't be a referee, women aren't umpires, you're, you know, you don't read very well, your grades are bad. Uh, and honestly, um, no made me work harder. Yeah. Um, I, when I was first going to college, which they were surprised anybody took me, especially Miami, I still don't know how that happened. 
Um, my brother came into my room while I'm packing and he said, um, he was at Southern Illinois. He was going to be a junior, I guess. And he said, you'll never make it to Christmas. He said, you're too stupid to be in college. Yeah. I bet you 20 bucks you're going to flunk out by Christmas. Mm -hmm. I would have rather been hit by a car and killed than yeah. flunk out of college. Absolutely. And and I made the dean's list every time but once. Mm -hmm. Okay. And today, don't think badly of me, but I have more degrees than my brother on my wall. I'm not gonna think and I'm like, yeah, there you I'm go, not Jeff. I'm think badly of you. I'm proud of you. Yeah. Well, but you know what I'm saying is, and, and yeah. when everybody told me, no, it just yeah. made me work harder yep. to prove them wrong. Now yep. that may not work for everybody, but to me at this age and, and what I've been through, I take, I took no as a gift. Go ahead. You, you, I'll prove you wrong. Did you watch the dance? No. Okay. You should watch it. Okay. Because Michael Jordan talks about, it's an ESPN special. Michael mm -hmm. Jordan talks about how People said no to him all his life, and it was a motivator for him. Yes, he would take that, is. and he would he would grab onto that, and it would be a supreme motivator for him because he was going to prove them wrong. Okay, I I am one hundred percent with him, yeah. and I would tell my students when it's funny when I I was forced to be a reading specialist, and yeah. I went to my my principal. I said I can't be a reading specialist, and and you have to because we didn't have enough kids in the journalism program right. and so I go back to school to become a reading specialist and that's when i learned i was dyslexic right and it was like it was such a relief right. that i realized why i struggled with certain things i still struggle with directions i still struggle with with numbers uh, but you know i'm a writer so i figured out how to how to do it but when i was teaching reading i would tell my students that Mm -hmm. They were told they were too stupid to do anything. Yep. No, you're never going to be successful. And I told them, I said, look, I have a reading disability. Mm -hmm. If I can do this, so can you. And a few kids would always nod their heads like, okay, if she could do it and everyone told her no, and everybody said she was stupid, maybe I can too. Yep. And it's funny because I think that was one of the most valuable things I shared with my kids. That and the fact that my dad was an alcoholic and I had a sister who was a drug addict and it made me more like them. And, and so they got to a point where I wasn't just some random old white lady, but that I was someone who could understand not only that they might have learning disabilities, but that they came from families that weren't perfect. You know, you know what you did today? No. You showed people and perhaps thousands of people that they can do it because you did it. That's I what you did to have that message because that's what that's what you did today. Yeah, be, be, when people say no, you got to prove them wrong. Yeah, you know, you and maybe if no one had done that, maybe if I hadn't struggled as a as a kid, because you know, kids made fun of me and I was bullied, and and my my family looked at me with despair because I was fat, and uh, I and then I, my grades were bad. That I could have given up. Yeah, like at some point, but I was just too stubborn to give up. Well, but you have to think about this for a second. If somebody tells you you're too stupid or somebody tells you that you can't do something, if you believe them, they win. Yes. If you prove them wrong, you win. So it comes down to who would you rather have win? It's a right. life's about choices, right? Mm -hmm. Pick your hard. <laughs> yep. Right? It's either going to be hard this way or it's going to be hard this way. It was one hard both ways. One way yeah. you lose. Uh, no, I agree. And I, I, I'm i saying thank you to all those people who told me, no, I'd never be yeah. anything. Like, ah, fooled you. You're an amazing example. And I <laughs> cannot, from the bottom of my heart, I cannot thank you enough for being on this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. And we'll talk to you in June when, you're, when your next book's ready. Okay.
Thanks, Ann. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.